This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Well, you may be seated. My name is Will. I'm the youth and college pastor here at, at Church of the Res, and it is great to be with you this morning. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are entering one of the great art museums of the world. And you can picture yourself walking into the Chicago Institute of Art or, or the Uffizi in Florence, Italy, or the Louvre in Paris. And you're walking in, and it is a grand, one-time-only exposition where they have gathered from all over the world the greatest works by the greatest authors or uh, artists who have ever lived. So there's, there's Michelangelo, and there's Da Vinci, and there's, you know, there's Van Gogh, and there's Monet, and there's, you know, O'Keefe and, and Frida Kahlo. I mean, everybody that you can think of is all there. And at the center of, of this exposition is the most influential artist of all time, the one whose work has been the most widely discussed of any of these artists, the one who's had more of an influence on the other, the one who's been studied you know, by, this, by this great legacy of artists. And so, so you can't wait to get there. And you walk in and you look, and you can't help but feel confused. And, and disappointed because you were expecting to walk in and see, you know, maybe this magnificent statue, but that's not what you see. Or this, or this giant, you know, beautiful fresco, but that's not what you see. Instead, what you see are this series of sketches, you know, beautifully but kind of hastily drawn. You know, sketches that were never meant to be featured in a museum. You know, sketches that were done for friends that, that even have, like, weird little notes on the side by the artist. Like, you know, shopping lists and reminders and to-dos and, and even just favorite song lyrics. And you're confused. And you're like, who is this artist? And how did they become so influential? How did these little sketches become so influential in the world of art? Well, so this morning, as we are talking about the Apostle Paul, the man who was born Saul, whose story that we just read from the book of Acts, we are talking about an author whose influence is something like this fictional artist that I've just been describing. Because Paul was a nobody. You should not know Paul's name, and yet you and I would not be here this morning if it weren't for what God did in and through him if it weren't for God showing up in his life as he did. I mean, think of this. Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament. He did more than any other writer in the Bible to explain what God was up to in sending his son, Jesus. And his entire body of work, all the writings that we have from Paul, amount to a bit less than 80 pages. That's less than almost any other significant work of literature by any author. And yet, think of an author who has been more widely discussed, who has been more widely read, who's had more sermons and dissertations and talks and even transformed lives because of their work. It's difficult to think of an author who's had more of an influence than Paul. And so this morning, as we look at, at his kind of conversion story, the conversion of Saul, let's approach this with a sense of wonder and curiosity. Because this is a familiar story, I mean, one that many of us could recite by heart. 
But let's approach this with a sense of wonder and curiosity because this isn't just a dramatic conversion, but this is one of the world-changing events in all of human history. The primary, you know, source account of what this looked like. And so I want to ask three questions this morning. Who was Saul? Who was Saul? What happened on the road to Damascus that day? And what does all of this mean for us today? What's the relevance of his life and even his conversion? So who was Saul? And there's different things that we can, we can piece together. We can't, like, get in his mind, but we have his writings. We know things that he said about himself. And we have things we can piece together historically, just understanding the context that he was living in. And so this morning, I, want, I, I just want you to know I'm kind of drawing substantially from the, the work of one historian. His name's N.T. Wright, who's kind of the Paul scholar of our generation. Uh, I'd encourage you to check out his biography of Paul. It is, it is very engaging. Um, so the first thing to know about Saul is that Saul was a man of great conviction and great learning. Of great conviction and great learning. So Saul is growing up in this, you know, city of Tarsus, which is in today's, you know, southeastern uh, Turkey. And Tarsus was this kind of large cosmopolitan commercial center that was known for making these really durable textiles. And so Paul later says, you know, that his family was in the tent-making business. So it's likely that, that his family was participating in kind of this main industry in Tarsus. And Tarsus is also one of these large cities that's kind of halfway between the eastern and western edges of the Roman Empire. And so Saul, growing up, would have had people from all over crisscrossing through his cities. And we know from his writings that he is very attuned to some of the dominant philosophies and ideas of the day. He's engaging them, engaging what people are saying. But also, when it came to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament often, when it came to the Hebrew Scriptures, Saul knew his stuff. He knew the Scriptures backwards and forwards, so much so that when you read his writings, you see quotes and references and allusions and echoes everywhere. So much so that 2,000 years later, we are still uncovering new echoes of the Hebrew Scriptures in his thought. I mean, he saw the whole world through the lens of God's revelation to Israel, this man of great learning. And he would have grown up, like all Jews, living in exile, living in a Gentile city. He would have grown up with tremendous pressure to compromise. So you think about his family, this Jewish family, you know, committed to keeping the Sabbath, that means that their business is only running six days a week. They are intentionally unproductive one day a week. Well, at this time, right, there's no weekend. So everybody else in the world, everybody else in Tarsus is working seven days a week. You know, so there's financial pressure for them to compromise. There would have been compromised, or pressure to compromise on their, their moral convictions, on their theological convictions. You know, the, the Jews were looked at like, like weird and maybe even dangerous. Why are they so insistent that there's only one God? Everybody believes in a multiplicity, a plurality of gods. Why do you guys only believe in one? Why do you have to be different? You would have grown up under immense pressure to compromise and to participate in the idolatry of the day. 
And yet for everything we know, Saul held firm to his convictions. And so in Acts chapter 8, that's where we first read his name. And he's in Jerusalem, a city that he's studied in, a city that he's visited many times, a city that is the city for, for a Jew to return to, right? You think of the Psalms of Ascents, the joy in coming to Jerusalem. You know, that's, that's likely Saul's sense of this city. And he's there in his mid-20s or so, maybe late 20s, and he hears terrible news. He hears terrible news that his fellow Jews are following a new prophet, which isn't such a big deal. Lots of prophets and teachers came and went, except this new prophet was a false prophet. This new prophet was a blasphemer. This new prophet spoke against the temple, the one place on earth, the most important place on earth, where God has promised to dwell. And this false prophet got what he deserved because the Hebrew scriptures say, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And that's exactly what happened to this false prophet. He was crucified. And that should have been the end of it. And yet, this false prophet's followers are still talking about him. They're talking about him as if he's still alive today. They're talking about him as if they can swear allegiance to this false prophet and continue swearing allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So when Saul hears about this, Saul is hearing about compromise, about compromise amongst his own brothers and sisters and the Jewish people. And Saul is there on this day when Stephen this Jewish follower of this false prophet, is brought to trial and then stoned to death. And Luke, the writer of Acts, says that Saul approved of this execution. And not only did he approve of it, he was inspired by it. Because after this, Saul went on his own campaign of doing the very same thing, of finding and capturing other Jewish followers of this false prophet, trying to put a stop to this false teaching, trying to suppress this false teaching. So the other thing you have to know about Saul is that he is zealous. That's how he describes himself later in his letter to the Philippians. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Like so many other heroes in the Hebrew Scriptures, Paul was filled with zeal. And he knows that things are not right with the people of God. There's injustice. There's immorality. There's idolatry. And the sign that things are not right is in the fact that the promised land, the land given to this Israel, the people of God, the promised land does not belong to them. It belongs to the Romans, right? So Moses, I mean, you know, thousands of years earlier, Moses leads the people of God out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the promised land. And he says to them as they're going, if you obey the Lord, if you stay faithful to him, then you will be given the land and you will be blessed. You will prosper so much that the nations will pour in and they will be asking you for help. They'll come up the holy hill in Jerusalem. They will come up, you know, to the temple, the place where God dwells, and they will be looking to you for advice. But if you disobey, if you disobey, then everything I'm giving you in the promised land, I will take, 
and I will give to someone else. And of course, that's what happens. There's an exile, and the people of God lose their land. And now, hundreds of years later, even though they're back in the land, even though they're living in Jerusalem, they don't own it. The Romans do. Which means that the Jewish people is living under constant threat of Roman oppression. This little space that the Romans have carved out, allowing the Jews to be themselves, to live their culture, to have their theological beliefs, this space that they've carved out could be taken away at any minute. They live in constant threat that what they have will be destroyed yet again. And so Saul has zeal. Saul has zeal because all of this has come about because the people of God compromised. This Roman oppression came about because the people of God disobeyed. And so when he hears that this is continuing, that his own generation is repeating the mistakes of the past, Saul is not going to sit by and let it happen. Paul, or Saul is going to do something about it. He's going to put his own body on the line, and he is going to pursue these people. He is going to have zeal. He is going to purify the people of God in hopes that when he does that, God will restore the land to Israel. God will restore his people just as he promised. And so in uh, Acts chapter 9, this is what we read this morning. In verse 1, we read, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord. You see, he was so successful. He was so successful in pursuing the church in Jerusalem that the, the church has scattered. They've gone into hiding in the countryside or in other cities. So, still breathing threats and murder, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, a large city with a large Jewish population 150 miles away so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, Saul's been so, or to, yes, Saul's been so successful in Jerusalem, so successful in stirring up fear, that now he's ready to multiply his mission. And he's taking his zeal to another city to do the same thing there, to purify the people of God. And he's got papers with him. His papers from the high priest's saying, I'm not acting with my own authority. The whole temple is co-signing this with me. And to modern readers like us, I mean, all of this can sound crazy, right? I mean, Saul sounds like a psychopath, right? What is the big deal with just letting people believe what they believe? What's the big deal with this? But to think that, that Saul is just some, you know, psychopath, is just crazy, is really to misunderstand him. Because we should be able to understand Saul living in the times that we do. Because for Saul, these aren't just personal, private, religious beliefs. But these are dangerous beliefs. These are beliefs that have real-world consequences. If this idolatry goes on, then Roman oppression will go on, and it's the innocent who will suffer the most. And we can understand this. I mean, don't we live in a time where people on both the left and the right 
you know, sides of the, the political, social spectrum? Don't we live in a time where people are afraid of the spread of certain ideas? Don't we live in a time where people are afraid that if certain ideas take hold in our country, we will lose all of the progress that we've made so far? Don't we live in a time where people are afraid that we are repeating the mistakes of the past? We do. We live in a time where people are so afraid, so desperate, that they begin to use the word hate when describing others who think differently. We live in a time where people that we had considered reasonable and, and good are now talking as if violence is the only thing that could bring change. They're so desperate. They're so afraid. That's what's going on for Saul. He's desperate. He's hopeful that God can restore Israel. But he's desperate. These ideas, if they spread, are going to keep his people in suffering. And so here's the next question that we could ask. How does that guy, how does that guy become the foundational messenger of this supposed false prophet's teaching? Look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. You know, so apparently his companions on the road that day, they couldn't see everything that was happening. But in the scriptures, light and fire are these common images to describe what it looks like when God in his glory shows up, reveals himself to his people. And in this case, the light was so overwhelming that Saul falls to the ground. And he hears this voice saying in verse 4, Saul, Saul. He thinks, I'm known. This person knows me by name. Saul, Saul. This person sees me, sees the work that I'm doing, sees my passion, sees my zeal, sees the, sees the energy that I've been pouring into this mission, sees my heartbreak over what's happening to my people sees the lengths that I am willing to go to bring glory to God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine his confusion? Perse persecuting, persecuting who? I'm, I'm persecuting them. I'm persecuting the people with the dangerous ideas. I'm persecuting our enemies, the compromisers. And so he asks, Lord, who are you? And he hears, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. I mean, the most devastating words that Saul could have heard. He hears this supposed false prophet speaking to him from the heavens. And for Saul, there's no mistaking the meaning of this. I mean, false prophets don't come back from the dead. False prophets don't show up with blinding light. False prophets don't speak from the heavens as only God and his messengers do. And in this one moment, 
Saul's entire life, his entire way of seeing the world is flipped upside down. Now, is it right to call this a conversion? Is it right to call what Saul is experiencing here a conversion? And in one sense, it is. I mean, Saul is having a drastic change of opinion, particularly about this prophet, Jesus. Of a drastic, drastic change. But in another sense, it's not right to call this a conversion. Because it's not as if Paul or, or Saul is, is changing his religion. It's not as if he's going from, from worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now he's going to worship Jesus. But really what's happening is he's realizing that he has fundamentally misunderstood the God of Israel. And so this process begins for Saul of thinking back to the law and the prophets and the tabernacle and the temple and the land, that all of this that he has held dear, that he has built his life upon, that he has been passionate about, zealous for, all of that all along was pointing to someone. It was all pointing to Jesus. And that the way that God is going to bring restoration to his people, the way that God is going to bring justice is not through violence. It's not through moralism, but it is through the death and resurrection of his very own son. He is stepping even, you know, more fully into his Jewish Hebrew identity when his eyes become opened to the Son of God. So getting back to the story, when the vision ends, Saul gets up, and he looks at his companions, but actually his eyes aren't opened. He's blind. And verse 9 says that for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I think three days of darkness. Meanwhile, the Lord speaks to a follower of Jesus in Damascus, you know, another Jewish follower of Jesus, a man named Ananias, and tells him to go and look for Saul and that you'll find him praying. And Ananias says, Lord, I know this name. I know who this guy is. I mean, this, this man has been ravaging the church. That's the way Luke describes it in Acts. And the Lord says, Go, Ananias, lay hands on him for his healing. And so Ananias obeys, and he goes, and he finds Saul. And notice what he says to him in verse 19. He goes to this man who has been his enemy, the great enemy of this fledgling little community. And Ananias says to him, Brother, Brother, not opposition, not enemy, not murderer. But he goes to him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you may regain your sight, so that you might be healed, and so that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and Saul regained his sight. 
And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. You think baptism, this symbol of forgiveness. You know, taking food, being strengthened. I mean, there's like a resonance here with the Eucharist. This food that strengthens us. I'm not saying Ananias brought the Eucharist to him. I'm just saying that thematically that's there. And so what do we see happening for Saul? There's a healing. There's an outward healing of his physical blindness. There's an inward healing of his spiritual blindness that he has been living under. There's forgiveness of sins offered in baptism. There's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's strengthening all within the brotherhood, the family of the church, the body of Christ. Healing, forgiveness, strengthening, indwelling. We'll come back to those things. And after this, Saul immediately begins proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And over the next decades of his life, he's going to continue piecing this together, how all of the Hebrew Scriptures were pointing to Jesus all along. But for now, he knows without a doubt that Jesus, this, this supposed false prophet, is not a false prophet. He is the revelation of God the Father. He is the Son of God. And people can't believe it. They're still afraid of him even years later. But the zeal that drove him to violence, that same zeal is now driving him to speak and proclaim and argue that Jesus is the Son of God. And the result, Luke says in verse 31, is that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so we come to our final question. What does all of this mean for us today? What does this remarkable transformation mean for us today? Especially when many of us do not have a dramatic conversion story like that. You know, we, we, most of us, I'm assuming probably all of us, have not seen the skies opened and the Lord Jesus speak to us with this thunderous voice and, and then have been afflicted with this blindness and then been healed. Most of us, we didn't have that experience. I mean, some of us cannot remember a moment of conversion. Some of us have grown up in the church all of our lives. We never remember a moment that we didn't trust Jesus, that we didn't trust God as our Father. And so what, what does this mean for those people? I mean, because in Christian culture, there can sometimes, you know, grow this thing. A friend was describing to me, he, said, he called it testimony envy, right? Where somebody, you know, everybody's like getting around, they're telling these, you know, testimonies of God's grace. And, and it's like every testimony needs to like kind of one-up the one before and like, oh yeah, I mean, me too. I mean, I was, I was really living in darkness. I was, I was violent. I would lash out at people. I was undisciplined and uncontrolled. And then when I was five, you know, I, uh, I prayed and, um, and, you know, I just, I have not been the same. I think I, you know, we feel like we have to beef up our stories to talk about the Lord's grace and mercy. But we don't need to do that. The important part of Saul's conversion 
is not, you know, the fireworks here. It's not, it is an incredible story. It's a story we celebrate and, and love to tell, of course. But the important part of Saul's story is the important part of your story if you believe in Jesus. It's that, like Saul, you were seen by the Lord Jesus. Like Saul, you would be lost in sin without him. You would be under judgment. Like Saul, you would be living in spiritual blindness if the Lord had not come to you and drawn you to himself. Like Saul, you have been healed of spiritual blindness and are being healed. Like Saul... You have been filled with the Holy Spirit and forgiven of your sins and are experiencing strengthening even now here in the church. Those are the important features, the most important features of Saul's conversion. And so you think, you know, when people, um, you know, share about their their love story, right? You know, they're they're getting married, you know, go to a wedding or the rehearsal dinner, and, and they tell this dramatic story you know, about how this husband and wife came together. And some of those stories are just wonderful and fun to listen to. But a dramatic early stage of your love story does not sustain a marriage, right? What sustains a marriage? It's it's faithfulness and mutual affection and care and sacrifice. Those are the important features, regardless of whether there was some dramatic beginning or not. And it's, a, it's the same in our lives with the Lord. It's not the fireworks, the drama that makes our walks with God meaningful or true, or even that makes them signs of God's grace, but it, it is those other features that I mentioned, that we are each seen by the Lord, called by Him, filled with His grace and mercy, healed, forgiven, filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the critical features of our stories. But I think there's also a word here for people who say, yeah, yeah, you know, because I'm not, I don't don't really have a walk with the Lord like that. In fact, I'm I'm never going to probably hear the Lord speak to me that way. And it's important for us to have reasonable expectations, to not expect a Damascus Road kind of experience, to realize this is kind of significant and unique. But we shouldn't say never. Because it's not up to you how the Lord will reveal himself to you. And, and, you know, so we shouldn't say, oh, it'll never happen for me this way, or I'll never have a profound experience, or I'll never experience a miracle, I'll never have a sense of hearing his voice or a sense of his presence. You don't know that. And so the call for you is to be open to however the Lord might reveal himself to you. And to take heart in those little moments those little testimonies of times, worship services, or times of prayer, or times in nature, those little testimonies of when the grace and mercy and love of God became real to you in a fresh way. That is a perfectly legitimate testimony of the Lord's grace and his goodness. Okay, secondly, Saul's story helps us to see something that's going to become crucial for for Paul's ministry later on. And, and just so you know, I mean, I keep flip-flopping these words. Saul is the name he was born with. It's an Aramaic name. Paul is just the Latinized version of the same name. Okay, so that's all that's happening there. He, he wasn't renamed. He just starts going by, you know, a more commonly used Paul. But later on in his ministry, there's an idea that's going to become really important. 
that when, when somebody comes to faith, the old is not destroyed, it's transformed. Their lives are transformed wholly, completely. But you think about Saul's life. I mean, he didn't stop being Jewish when he was called by Jesus. He didn't stop being full of zeal. He didn't stop being this man of great learning and great conviction. But all of that was transformed to now give glory to Jesus. And that's true for each one of us. When we are healed and when we are transformed, it's not like, you know, there's this stuff we love about ourselves that we're just going to have to give up. It's like the stuff that's got to go, that's going to go. But who you are, it's going to stick around because it's going to be transformed. You are going to become new. You are going to become more fully yourself in Christ. And the same thing that happens in an individual's life happens in the life of a whole culture. You know, so Saul's first letter, it's, it's going to be to the Galatians. And what's he going to say to them? He's going to say, you Galatians, you Gentiles, you do not need to stop being Galatian to trust in Jesus. You do not need to become Jewish to trust in Jesus. You do not need to give up your culture, but your culture, you can be transformed by the Spirit of God working within you. And this is why the, the Catholicity, the universality of the church is so wonderful. This explains the remarkable spread of Christianity throughout the world. That's why it's so wonderful when we have, you know, a Nigerian bishop speaking to us, or we hear testimonies from, you know, Southeast Asia, or we, we get to encounter, you know, like our, mis our, uh, our student mission trip in a couple weeks. You know, we're going to go to the west side of Chicago and partner with a, a Latino congregation there. That's why this is so wonderful, because what the Lord is trying to do is, is not to make all of these cultures the same, but is to transform each in their individuality and in their diversity. And someday in the new heavens and the new earth, all of the gifts of these various cultures, transformed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, all of those gifts will be brought into the holy city. What a remarkable thing. The Lord transforms. He doesn't destroy and lastly, this is, this is the most important point. This is where we'll close. Is that Saul's story shows us that God is a God who keeps his promises. You know, so thousands of years earlier, the Lord promised to Abraham that I am going to bless you. I am going to bless you and, and make a great nation out of you. And through you and your seed, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And the Lord kept that promise through Jesus. He is the blessing to the nations. And then the Lord calls Saul, this most unlikely convert, right? This most unlikely Jewish follower of Jesus. He calls him to have this principal ministry of making known to the world that Jesus is not just the Son of God for the people of Israel, not just the Savior of this small nation, but that He is the Savior of the entire cosmos. From one end of the universe to the other, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. And Saul is going to be the principal messenger of that. Which is why for most of us sitting in this room, not Jewish, the Gentile heritage, 
most of us can look back to this moment, to Saul's conversion, and see that not only was the Lord Jesus loving Saul in this moment, but he was loving you and me and all who have come to know the Lord Jesus through the teachings that the Lord would give us through the Apostle Paul. It's Paul who writes, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your immeasurable grace and love and mercy that you have for Saul and that you have now for all of us. We thank you that we have been welcomed into your family, to the church, the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that when you looked on us, you did not just see our sin, you did not just see our brokenness. Lord, you loved us. And you are healing us. You are forgiving us and have forgiven us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the work of your servant, Saul. And, Lord, I just pray that that as we continue to reflect on his words in the New Testament, his ministry, that more and more we would see you, you glorified in the pages of the New Testament. Lord, thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.